You know, the name Lewis Puller is a popular and famous name amongst U.S. Marines. He worked his way from private all the way up to lieutenant general. He's the most decorated Marine in American history. As a soldier, he was feisty and smart, continually volunteered uh, to go to where the dangerous, most violent battles would take place because he knew he would always win. In one particular battle, his battalion was surrounded and under heavy fire. He, He called upon his troops with this rally cry. He said this, they're in front of us and behind us. And we're flanked on both sides by an enemy that outnumbers us 29 to 1. They can't get away from us now. Well, for believers, we are in a fight. We are in a battle. We are in a war in which the enemy is around us. We are daily having to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Jesus as we seek to put to death our flesh. We are continually working against the world that is seeking to rise up against all that is true from God and from his word. Indeed, we have an enemy, Satan, who seeks to come against God's people to destroy them and their commitment to Christ. So what do we do? As followers of Jesus, we indeed are called upon by Simon Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 to stand firm in the faith. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. We've been going through a sermon series now for 26 weeks of walking through the book of 1 Peter together as a faith family. And indeed, there's this imperishable glory that is coming for those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to be finish, finishing up our, our series through 1 Peter. But there's just been so much that we have been unpacking together for these 26 weeks. We've been seeing how Simon Peter is calling upon believers who in the first century who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. Throughout first century Turkey, modern day Turkey, there are believers who are facing persecution, facing suffering for the gospel. And Peter's saying, don't back down. Do not retreat. Remain faithful. Stand firm in the true grace of God. Now, after telling believers who we are in Christ in the first several chapters, he now starts teaching how to endure hardship and suffering. Last week, we looked at the first part of 1 Peter 5, in which God calls upon elders and pastors to be the church leaders who shepherd God's flock. They shepherd God's people who are among them. But now what we're going to see here in the text is Simon Peter is teaching believers how to stand firm in the faith, particularly we're going to see with our flesh, verses 6 and 7, and against the devil in verses 8 and 9. So how do I stand firm in the faith? I want you to see first, you've got to get low. Get low. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now, Peter is continuing this theme of humility by addressing all believers in all churches throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia and Asia. In verse 5, he says, All of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? Well, he quotes Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, and says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We touched on this last week, that if you are prideful, God will humble you. 
But if you are humble, God gives you grace. Now, Peter emphasizes humility again here in verse six, and he calls upon believers to humble yourselves. Quite literally, make yourselves small. This is a decision of the will. To humble yourself means to get low before the Lord. You see, pride is so natural to our fallen nature that it continually creeps up like weeds in a garden. Just as the landscaper must continually fight weeds, so the believer must continually fight against pride. So what do we do? Peter tells us, he says, to get low, humble yourselves, verse six, under the mighty hand of God. The call to humility is the call to get low under the sovereign, almighty, omnipotent hand of God. And when you do, verse six, he may exalt you at the proper time. Beloved, if you hold on to your pride, God will come against you. But if you humble yourself, if you get low, God will lift you up in due time. Well, Kenneth, how do I do this? What does this practically look like to humble myself? Let me give you three P words that will help you take those steps in getting humble. The, the first is this, is posture. It is physically getting low. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see when people were humbled by God, they would physically prostrate themselves. They would lay down, face down on the ground, or they would sit down and they, they would put ash, uh, ashes on themselves just to show their humility. They would physically get low. So it's a physical posture. But the second P word is the pr- is word prayer. It is the confession of sin in which you are being very specific and you are saying, God, here are all the areas of my life in which I have fallen short of your glory. And when you start confessing sin, it leads you to humility. You see, prayer is that time in which you're casting your utter dependence upon God and saying, Lord, I need you. I need you to see in all the areas in which I, I fall short. And you already know this, but I'm gonna humble myself and confess my sin and, and I wanna come before you. The second, uh, I'm sorry, the third P word is people. Posture, prayer, people. With people, if there are people whom you have sinned against, you need to go to them and say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I had to do this last night with my children. I, last night, my attitude was not that in which it honored Jesus. And so I'm saying, I'm gonna preach this sermon tomorrow, so I gotta get this right, right? So I went to them and I said, guys, daddy's attitude did not point to Jesus tonight. And I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? You see, there's, there's, there's this relationship in which you go to those whom you have sinned against. And you humble yourself and you confess your sin and you ask for forgiveness. This is what the gospel motivates us to do as believers. But also under the people category, it's accountability. In which you invite other people to, to look at your life and say, hey, would you examine my life and see areas that don't look like Jesus? Here, you can have complete access to all the websites I look, look at. And here, here's a, you can look at my, my, my bank statement. You can see where I'm spending my money. I wanna be as humble as possible. I wanna posture myself low. So through, through posture and prayer and people, these are steps you take to become more of a, of a man of God, a woman of God who is humble before the mighty hand of God. I want you to see, secondly, you are to heave your cares on the Lord. Verse seven, 
Peter says, casting all your cares on him, why? Because he cares about you. The Lord is inviting you to literally throw, to cast, to heave your anxiety, your cares, your worries, your fears, your burdens, your sin, all upon him. You see, God is seeking to set you free from the weight in which you carry upon your heart and on your life. Some of you are carrying around things that you were not intended to carry. For some of you, it's anger over how someone has treated you. Or for some of you, it's shame over sin that you have committed. I want you to know that what Christ accomplished for you in the gospel is to set you free. And here he invites you to cast all of your cares upon him. You see, you must decide either you lug your fears, worries, and anxieties yourself, or you can heave them all upon the strong and faithful shoulders of Jesus. Here the Lord is inviting you to liberate yourself and to cast all of your cares and worries upon him. One way to help you do this is an exercise that sometimes I, I coach people up on this in counseling, is to take a piece of paper and fold it in half lengthwise. And on one half, write down all of your worries, all of your cares, your concerns, maybe even the sins that you're fighting and struggling with, and get them all written down. For some of you, it may be a novel, okay? And that's okay. But then on the opposite side, open up your Bible and start writing down the character of God, who he is, what he has done, promises that he has made. And what you do is, is once you do that, once you've got everything listed, you have poured your heart out on one side and you have listed out the character and the promises of God on the other, stop and pray over the document and say, Lord, I, I don't know where this week's paycheck's going to come from but you're my provider. You are faithful and strong. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. You've told me never will you leave me and never will you forsake me. You've told me that you are near to the brokenhearted. You are a shield and you are my defender. You are my rock and my savior. And so now I humble myself and I come before you. Don't look now, but you've just written a psalm. The psalms are people just like me and you who have struggles and worries and cares, anger, depression, and they write it all down. They say, God, where are you in all of this? But you're my rock. You have unfailing love. You care for your people. You're trustworthy in all of your ways. You are my defender. And what happens is you begin writing down all the ways in, get, in which God works in your heart and in your life, and you begin to be set free from your struggles. In 1678, John Bunyan published the book Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, please go read it. It's an amazing book, over 300 years old, but it still applies so much to today. And this story is about a young man named Christian who's on this journey to the celestial city. He's on his way to his eternal home in heaven. But as Christian is going, he has victories and defeats. He has times where he succumbs to temptation and times where he fights and, and claims victory. But throughout his journey, he is carrying upon his shoulders a literal burden, like a big giant boulder that's strapped upon his back. He is walking along the journey until he gets to the cross. And when Christian gets to the cross, his burden falls off. What burden are you carrying today? 
What stress and worry and anxiety are you carrying? What sin is weighing you down? Would you bring it to the cross? Would you bring it to Jesus and would you cast your cares upon him? Why? Because he cares about you. He loves you so much that he is personal and he is intimate and he wants to help you have victory and freedom in your life from everything that's weighing you down. So you cast your cares upon him. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 11. He said, uh, where'd it go? There it is. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord wants to liberate you today. Would you cast your cares upon him? Because he cares about you. The third way you can stand from the faith is to stay ready for the enemy's attacks. Look at verse eight. Peter says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. That phrase, sober-minded, means to keep a clear head. You see, when you sin, it muddies the waters of your thinking. Kind of like a, a window that's covered in mud. The more you sin, the more mud and dirt that's added. But when you confess your sins and you repent, the Spirit, by His grace, washes that window clean. Well, here, Simon Peter is with your mind. You have to be sober-minded. Okay, don't get drunk on the foolishness of this world, but have a clear mind. But then also, verse 8, be alert. It means to be awake, to be watchful, to be vigilant. This word is most often used when it comes to the return of Christ. But here, Peter applies the phrase, be alert to the attack of the devil. You see, the Bible is clear. You have an enemy. He hates you. He hates Christ in you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to steal from you. And he wants to kill you. And his name is Satan. In Genesis 3, he is the tempter that tempted Adam and Eve into sin. In Revelation 12, he is the accuser that accuses believers before our God both day and night. In John 10, he is the thief who, steal, who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus described him in John chapter 8, verse 44. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. But before we give him too much credit, we must remember that Satan is a pawn in God's hand. He is a dragon on a leash. He can only go so far as God sees fit. If Satan wants to make a move, he can only do so with the Almighty's permission. You see, Satan is a puppet on God's string. He must first ask God's permission before he can touch God's people. Before he came and, and touched Job, he first had to ask for God's permission. Even Simon Peter, the author of this letter, before he denied Jesus three times, Jesus said this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. He first had to get permission to come after Peter. 
You see, he can only go so far. If at any point that Satan rises up against you and tempts you, please know it must first go through the almighty hand of God. Now, the devil hates all image bearers, from those who are unborn all the way through to the nursing home. And Satan, Satan seeks to destroy all people who reflect the image of God. He also has a deep-rooted hatred for those who follow Jesus, especially those who push back against the darkness with the gospel of light. Hear me today. If you're going to be a passionate follower of Jesus, he will rise up against you. That's a sign you're doing something right. Passionate followers of Jesus have a very real enemy, and he wants to take you down. But what does he want? What we see from verse 9 is that Satan wants to take your faith. He wants to eat your faith for breakfast. And so he sows lies. He sows deceit into your mind. What was the first question that he asked Eve in the garden? Did God really say? He continues to ask that question. And that's the, the question of, questioning of God's word will be continually asked until the end of time comes. Did God really say that marriage is between one man and one woman for life? Did God really say that Jesus is the only way to the Father? Did God really say that you shall have no other gods before me? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Isn't it interesting that Satan seeks to undermine God's word? Because if you doubt God's word, you doubt God's character. If you doubt God's character, then you doubt God himself. And so he continually attacks God's word. Is God trustworthy? Can you trust his word? Isn't it interesting in Matthew chapter four, when Jesus is being tempted in the desert by Satan, every temptation that Satan brought to Jesus, he responded in the same way. It is written. It is written. It is written. Jesus continually went to the Bible as his weapon to fight back against the enemy. And the same is true for you. In your battle against the enemy, your Bible is your weapon. In Ephesians 6, Paul says to put on the full armor of God. And the one offensive weapon that he gives to us is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's all you've got, but it's all you need. The scripture is your way forward to claim victory in your spiritual warfare. I want you to, to make note of this. I want you to remember this is huge. I want to show you five ways that I have seen Satan devour the faith of, of people, of God's people. The first is this. Satan devours the faith of those who are Bibleists. If you're Bibleists, if you are not daily studying the scriptures, if you are not digging into God's word, you are setting yourself up to lose. As Jesus was tempted in the devil, by the devil in the desert, he fought back with the word of God. The same is true for you. Knowing the Bible and memorizing the Bible is your path to victory over the devil. When he rises up against you, it's essential that you know the word of God, that you have hidden it in your heart so that you might not sin against God. As a faith family for this year, our four impact station out in the atrium, we're challenging all Westwood members to memorize four Bible verses per month. Why? Because we want a, a fun little gimmick? No. We want the word of God in your heart. 
We want to know God's word because it's what gives us victory over sin. It's what gives us joy in the morning. It gives us purpose of why we move forward. But it's also what helps us defeat our greatest enemy. You see, the word of God is your path forward. And Christians who do not know the word, Christians who don't listen to Bible preaching, Christians who do not submit their lives to the word of God will come under attack and they will lose. I want you to see, second of all, it's not just those who are Bibleless, but it's those who are prayerless. You see, the depth of man's pride is revealed in his prayerlessness. Prayer is casting utter dependence upon God and saying, God, I need you. I need you. I want you. If you don't show up, I'm undone. My life falls apart. The situation goes down. I am desperate need of your mercy and grace. And so as believers, we pray, we seek his hand, we seek his protection, we seek his favor, we, we seek his hand to be upon our lives. If you're not daily, continually calling about to the Lord for mercy, you're gonna find yourself caught and unaware in a scheme of the devil. The men I talk to who are most often caught in adultery, the compromise came when they were Bibleless and prayerless. Pastors who most often fall, it's because they stop having quiet times. It matters that you're in the Word. It matters that you're on your face before God. You are in a war that is far more real than anything you can see. And your enemy is not playing games. He wants to take you down. So you stand firm in the faith with the word of God, with a deep prayer life. But I also want you to see the third danger, and it's this. It's those who are compromising. Big sin starts with small compromise. Big sin starts with small compromise. Kenneth, <laughs> It's just a little drink. It's just a look at a screen. It's just a few fudging of numbers. It's just a few Sundays to myself. It's just a few text messages amongst friends. Compromise. Wincing in the face of conviction. See, convictions are never convenient, but they're essential for your faithfulness to the gospel. If you want to finish well, do not compromise. You gotta be willing to say, you know what, I, I, I'm not crossing that line. I'm not going that path. I wanna finish well. So be weary of compromise in your heart. Let me ask you a question, where are you compromising? What used to be so egregious in which now you're like, no, I, I, that's not a big deal anymore. You know, this, this is something I could never do, but now you find yourself starting to swim into those waters. You're in danger when you begin to compromise. Fourthly, we see is those who are isolated. It's those who are isolated Christy and I, we were on a safari in Africa one time and our guide pointed out to us that the animals who are alone are the ones who are taken down by the predator. They did not have a herd to protect them. You ever watch Animal Planet or YouTube and you see animals out there? The lions try and go grab a hippo. That herd is like, no, sir, you're not getting one of ours. 
Well, for believers, this is why gathering on Sunday mornings is essential. You need the church. So when the enemy rises up against you, we say, no, sir, we're gonna pray back. We're gonna, we're gonna fight back. We're gonna equip you with truth. We're gonna surround you in prayer. We're gonna take care of your family. We're gonna move forward in victory. Why? This is what the church does. The church is one of God's good gifts to you to help you persevere in the faith. But oftentimes, believers, when they isolate themselves, they put themselves in danger. Can I share with you an epidemic that's taking place across our nation right now? And I talk with pastor friends of mine, and it's true, across the board. The most faithful, committed Christians used to be gathering in church at least four times a month, every Sunday. But now, the average is two. And right now, it's, it's such a bad situation right now that there are books and conferences trying to teach us leaders how in the world can we help believers to stay committed and faithful. I was listening to a podcast yesterday, like, man, how in the world do we fix this? Because, y'all, this is such a big deal. Isolation matters. If you're not faithfully gathering with God's people, you're putting your soul in danger. I'll give you four quick reasons why it matters. Number one, if you're inconsistent and you're gathering with God's people, I want you to know you're teaching your children what your priorities are. Parents, you're always teaching, always. Your kids are open books, their eyes are watching, and what you live, that's what they learn. And so you're showing what your true priorities are. Second of all is that if you're not gathering faithfully, you're gonna miss one of God's blessings. You see, when we gather together as God's people and we humble ourselves under his word, God shows up every time. And there is a blessing that God wants to give to you that you miss when you don't take time to gather together with his people. Thirdly, is that there are people who need to be blessed through you who won't be if you don't gather. You have a ministry. You have a role to play in the flock. It's not about a bunch of people stopping and just listening to some performer. No, 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 no. We're the family of God. And you have a ministry. And so if you don't gather, people will be robbed of being blessed through you. But fourthly, you position yourself to be isolated against the enemy. When you don't gather with God's people, when you isolate yourself, you're setting yourself up for disaster. If you're a college student, I want to challenge you, be faithful in gathering with God's people on Sunday. Get up early and be there. Learn, grow, submit, build relationships. At a time in which they're under the greatest amount of attack, far too many college students disengage from the local church. It's foolishness, it's danger. So the scriptures are replete with one anothering, that it's essential that we gather together as God's people. Fifth and finally of this section, I, I think this is the most discouraging of all five. It's those who are foolish. Proverbs is saturated with wisdom, and Lord willing, this fall, we're gonna start a sermon series through the book of Proverbs, and I, I can't wait to dig in that. We're gonna call it Walk in Wisdom, and I, I just, I love that book, and I'm looking forward to studying that together. But of all five marks, this one's most discouraging. It's because when you sit down with a brother who is in sin, when you sit down with a sister who is in sin, you, you admonish them, you urge them, hey, don't do that. Don't go that path. With tears in your eyes and a heart full of love, you're saying, don't go this way, repent, run to Jesus. Let's go the path of Christ. You're headed for destruction, don't go this way. And their response is a shrug of the shoulders. They're like, ah, I'm not listening. It's foolishness. 
They're fools. They're headed for danger. Proverbs says that a wise man loves rebuke. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Wounds from a brother can be trusted. You need people in your life who will wound you, that will bring you back to Jesus. And those who are wise, they, they heed the call. They follow. You're right, I'm sorry. May I say to you, if people are confronting you, if they love Jesus and they're godly and they're saying, hey, listen, you're going a path that is not the way of Christ. Come this way. And you shrug your shoulders. You're a fool. And you are ripe for the picking from the enemy who wants to take you down and eat your faith for breakfast. While Christy and I, we were on that safari, we experienced something that I'm never going to forget. We had a leopard that walked right by our truck, and he was on the prowl. He walked with purpose. And as he's walking, he got to the point where we kind of followed him in our truck, like, where's he going? What's he going to do? And then he just got real low and started walking forward, just real slow. And we were like, let's go see where this is going. We drive around, and we see an impala. It's like a deer with horns. And it's by itself. It's isolated. And he's crouched real low. And we waited. But then something happened I didn't expect. The birds in the trees started chirping really loud, like hundreds of them. And I asked our guide, I said, what are they doing? And he said, they're warning the impala he's in danger but he's not listening. And then the guide looked at me with a smile and he said, he is stupid. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this is gonna be a great sermon illustration. <laughs> sure enough, minutes go by, the Impala takes a few steps, Within a matter of seconds, that leopard had its teeth on its neck. The church are like the birds, shouting, warning, danger, you're in trouble. And the foolish don't listen. Are you going to be a fool? Or are you going to be wise? You have an enemy who is playing for keeps. And here Simon Peter is warning believers. He's challenging believers. Remain faithful. Stand firm in the true grace of God. Hear me. If godly people are in your life calling you to repent, listen and obey. It's God's good gift. And by the way, if there are people in your life who are in sin and they claim the name of Jesus, we're gonna unpack this in a few weeks on church discipline one of the most loving things that you can do is to go have a broken-hearted conversation with them. That's love. Telling someone the truth. You need to go to them, humble yourself, pray for them, pray for that conversation, and go have a tough conversation and call them to come back to Christ. But I want you to see fourthly from the text that we are to fight with aggression, 
for the faith. Verse 9, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. That word resist, it was a, it's a military term, meaning to stand against but with intensity. You declare, I'm standing here. I'm not backing down. I will not retreat, and I'm going to fight back. I'm going to resist the devil. I'm going to fight back. James gives, up, gives us a promise in James 4, 7. He says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So you say, I'm going to stand firm in the faith, verse 9. I'm going I'm to fight back. But see, this is one of the reasons why Jesus came. In 1 John 3, 8, John says, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. You see, Jesus came to die on the cross, and through his cross, he destroyed the works of the devil. That's one of the purposes of why he came. You see, the great enemy of the believer, Satan, has been defanged. Paul says in Colossians 2, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly and he triumphed over them in him. So you fight with aggression for the faith, but you're not alone in the fight. Verse nine, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Peter's reminding these first century believers, you're not the only one who's putting up a fight. Warfare is, 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 is raging on all fronts around the world. We have sisters in Southeast Asia who are laboring for the gospel, who are being tempted in every way as we are. But they're on their faces and they're praying for victory. We have brothers in Sub-Saharan Africa who are remaining faithful to Jesus. They're preaching the gospel at the risk of their very lives. There are pastors in the citrus fields of Belize who are faithful to the word and they're preaching the gospel and they're laboring and they're still under attack just as we are. We have family in Christ in underground China who are uncompromising on the gospel. They're preaching the word. They're making disciples against a government that cannot stop them. I want you to know, whatever you're facing, you're not alone. There are brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering, they're tempted, they're tried just as you are. You see, one of the lies that Satan will whisper into our ears is that you are the only one struggling with the sin that you're struggling with. How could you? You're the only one. Everyone else has their act together. How could you do that? You ever heard those words? I have. But it's a lie. We have brothers and sisters in Christ scattered amongst the nations who are laboring for the gospel and they too are tempted. They too are struggling and they are fighting valiantly. In verse 9, Peter's saying, you're not alone in your struggle, but you keep fighting. Which leads to number five, is that one day God will reward faithfulness. Verse 10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, this is so good. He's not delegating this away to angels. He's not delegating this away to someone else to do. Himself, here's what he's going to do restore, establish, strengthen, and support who? You, after you have suffered a little while. Suffered a little while, it's the rest of your life. Well, that doesn't sound like a little while. Well, in light of 10 million years, it is. 
These light momentary afflictions that we're experiencing in this life are not worth compared to the glory that's about to be revealed to us. It's light and it's momentary. But he himself is gonna restore, establish, strengthen. He's gonna support. So everything you lose in this life, you can have it because I got something better that's coming and God says, I myself will take care of you. I'll make sure you have everything you need. I'm gonna restore, establish. I'm gonna take care of you because you are mine and you belong to me. So let me ask you a question. Why in the world do we forfeit eternity by playing games in this temporary life? Why get worked up over petty drama when one day you're gonna be ruling the cosmos with Christ? Why work yourself to death over money that you can't take with you? Don't be thinking about what's the next 30 years look like. It's what's the next 30 million look like. That's what we're preparing for. That's what we endure. And one day God will reward faithfulness. You see on that cross, the enemy had Jesus surrounded. But Jesus stood firm and through his suffering and through his death on the cross, he did not flinch. And on the third day, he got up out that grave and indeed he stood back up. And he is standing firm. And so as Stephen in Acts chapter seven is having his, his flesh ripped off with rocks and with stones, he looks up to the heavens and he sees Jesus standing firm that empowers him to stand firm in the midst of persecution and suffering. Whatever you're dealing with today, I want you to know that you have a savior who knows exactly what you have gone through and he stood firm in the gospel. And now by the spirit who abides and who lives inside of you both now and forever, he will empower you to stand firm in the midst of pain and suffering. As you are tempted and tried, you have a savior who is with you. He is for you. He will never leave you and he will empower you to stand firm. You're gonna wanna compromise, stand firm. You're gonna wanna give up, stand firm. You're gonna be tempted to fall away, stand firm. You're gonna see others who walk away, stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. That's the call that Peter is making to first century and 21st century believers. Because reality is, we have an enemy. He's in front of us and he's behind us. He's got us flanked on both sides. But he can't get away this time. Because we have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus Christ. Let's follow him. 